this talk will be called Irrigating the Field. And um, I'm going to try to pull together a number of threads that uh, we've been following in the last seven days now. But let me start with something we haven't actually looked at yet. And that is these questions about which the Buddha refused to give an answer. Sometimes these are called the, uh, the undeclared points. I'm sure some of you are familiar with them. Those of you who are not, there are usually listed 10, sometimes 14, but 10 will do. As I'll read them out, actually. The world is eternal. The world is not eternal. The world is finite. The world is not finite. The soul and the body are the same. The soul and the body are two different things. After death, the Tathagata exists. After death, the Tathagata does not exist. After death, the Tathagata both exists and doesn't exist. And after death, the Tathagata neither exists nor does not exist. Now, these are um, given uh, as a kind of a stock uh, passage, technically called a pericope, that you find slotted into many of the suttas. And they're usually presented as um, sort of dogmatic views that people argue about endlessly and end up, as the Buddha says, um, piercing each other with verbal darts. And these questions, the Buddha is basically saying, don't go there. This is not going to be helpful. Now, what is striking about these questions? If we try, I, I don't, we, we didn't get too bogged down in the details of each one. But these are, in a sense, the big questions that religions are in the business of answering. And, in a sense, what's striking about them is that um, they're still questions that people keep asking today. In other words, two and a half thousand years later, we still haven't actually resolved these questions. Now, the ones in particular, I think, that are perhaps pertinent uh, for us um, are the latter ones. Are the mind and the body the same or different? Nowadays, in cognitive science, this is called the mind-body problem. Now, again, the Buddha doesn't actually use the common words for mind and body here. He uses uh, the term uh, sarira and the term jiva. 
Sarira uh, is, is, it basically means sort of just almost dead matter, bone. Uh, in many Buddhist countries, like Korea, for example, they call the physical relics of a great saint uh, Sarira. In other words, the, the, the body in its most sort of brutal physical sense, the bits of bone, the bits of stuff, the bits of matter. And jiva is again a term you find throughout Indian thought, and it means something like the animating principle, life, vitality. It's sometimes, in some schools of thought, quite close to the idea of a soul or a spirit or a mind. But what it really, I think, comes down to is this notion that there is um, a physical, material something in which there is also an animating, spirit-like, mental-like life. Now, what's curious is that although the Buddha refused to even go near answering or giving any comment about these kinds of issues, uh, Buddhism, in its evolution over the subsequent centuries, has generally opted for what we would call a body-mind dualism. And it's had to do that in a way in order to make sense of the idea of, of rebirth and reincarnation. Um, if you just have um, a single body-mind complex, very difficult to understand when the body dies how some non-physical element called consciousness or awareness or mind or soul or whatever is able to survive the, the death of the physical body and continue on into another life. And although the Buddha does, or at least is, these passages are attributed to him, he does speak in terms of many lifetimes and past and future lives. He does not, anywhere in the Pali Canon, uh, uh, provide any kind of explanation how that might possibly work. So you get the sense, or at least I get the sense, that he's using that frame of reference, which was already very much around at his time, as a way to um, basically give a, base, a ground for his moral uh, views. In other words, if you do good deeds, this will give rise to positive effects in the future, even after your death, and so on. Nowadays, um, I think we um, have a different kind of problem around this same topic, which is our inheritance from uh, Descartes, who also speaks of um, a, a res extensa, which means an extended thing, a body, and a res cogitans, a knowing thing, which is the mind. And this is the basis of um, uh, the kind of dualistic worldview on the basis of which the whole modern scientific technological endeavor has been based. Now, this is quite a different frame of reference to that of the Buddha. 
But I think in both cases, um, you have a view of the world uh, in which um, there are two primary um, elements at work. There's something spiritual or mental or conscious on the one hand, and on the other hand, there's something inert and rather dead and not alive on the other. Now, my problem with this um, is on both fronts. I feel that with the, um, the classical Indian Buddhist idea, then you have this notion that what you really are, your spiritual life, your mental being, is somehow not um, in any uh, deep way um, connected to your physical existence, so that you know the commitment you will have to this world will always be mitigated by the fact that you know that after death you'll go on and get reborn somewhere else. In the Cartesian model, um, again, it sets up a sense that you, your knowing self, um, is somehow apart from the physical world uh, that you observe. And this is what establishes the basis for what's called scientific objectivity. That that part of you is sufficiently detached to be able to have a cold, objective appraisal and understanding of this world that you live in, your body, the environment, and so on. And I think in both cases... um, we suffer, I think, from uh, a basic split and a basic alienation from the uh, world or the environment of which we are a part. Now, the other question that is connected to this, of course, are the questions about um, what happens after death. Now, classically, this is phrased in terms of The Tathagata exists after death. The Tathagata does not exist after death. And Buddhist tradition has usually, rather conveniently, understood this to just having to do with the Buddha. It doesn't have to do with us. It has to do with the Buddha. But that doesn't really make a lot of sense. We have to remember that the word Tathagata is the term the Buddha uses when he speaks about himself. He doesn't say, I am going to the market. He says, the Tathagata is going to the market. I'm not going to get into the ins and outs of what Tathagata might mean. But basically it means one or I. And there is, um, in one of these passages, uh, a, a good example of how it can't really be referring to the Buddha. Because you have a report... Um, in one sutta, where someone comes to the Buddha and says, there's all these people out there near Savati discussing and debating these points, and then it lists them, including, does the Buddha exist after death or not? And that seems unlikely that non-Buddhists, and they're Brahmins and ascetics, would be concerned with a Buddhist theological issue. And in fact, the, the Pali commentary says, well, actually, in this case, we don't mean Tathagata, we just mean utter self. In other words, 
this refers to the big question, do we exist after death or do we not exist after death or both or neither? In other words, it really does have to do with the whole question of rebirth, the whole question of uh, a post-mortem existence. And this is something the Buddha refuses to make any declaration about at all. He's basically saying that is irrelevant. Now, the ways in which he illustrates uh, the, uh, the significance of this admittedly rather abstract metaphysical idea is by two parables. The parable of the arrow and the parable of the blind men and the elephant. I'm not going to go into any great detail of these, but um, just I'll sketch what they mean. In both these parables, um, the Buddha is starts by saying um, there are people who refuse to listen to you know what I have to teach until I give the answers to these big questions. And then he says, it's like a person who's been shot by a poisoned arrow and his friends bring a doctor to remove the arrow. But the person who's lying on the ground bleeding to death says, I will not let the doctor remove that arrow until I know. What was the name of the man who shot it? Was that person from this town or that village? Was the person tall or short? Was the person of golden skin or brown skin or whatever it was? And all of these fine details. Was the feathers in the arrow that shot me from a stork or a, an eagle or some other bird? Which is, I think, a wonderful parody of the theological tendency to end up discussing for example, how many angels you can get on the, pin, the tip of a needle. It's very much pointing to that way of thinking, of getting caught up in these fine doctrinal issues that become extremely complicated. And uh, for monks in monasteries with nothing better to do, terribly interesting. <laughs> But the Buddha's point is, um, well, of course, this would be absurd for such a person who's dying to, you know, to insist on having that information. What really matters in this case is only one thing, and that is pulling out the arrow, removing the arrow. Everything else is irrelevant. And so likewise, people who get caught up in uh, these kinds of metaphysical questions are basically, um, in a sense, doing the equivalent of rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. It's, it's a totally pointless exercise because the ship is sinking. And likewise, we are dying. Uh, our life is trickling out and yet we get preoccupied with wanting to know whether consciousness exists separately from the body or not. It's a complete waste of time. <coughs> now, all of this, to me, points to something rather fundamental in, and also something highly distinctive in the Buddha's approach, 
namely that he's concerned not with coming up with a definitive um, description or account of the nature of reality. He's concerned with addressing the issue of dukkha and the issue of craving. That's what matters. Doing something about our situation in life that might make a qualitative difference to how we live. Now, in modern parlance, we would call that a therapeutic approach. We would call it a pragmatic approach. And yet it's very difficult, I think, um, to get out of this curiosity and this insistence on coming up with answers to these big questions so that we can have perhaps the consolation and the comfort of knowing what is true. This, these examples show quite clearly that's not what the Buddha is interested in. He's interested in dukkha. He's interested in tanha, what this, our reaction to dukkha, craving, grasping, etc. And what can be done about that in such a way that our lives can flourish by living from a perspective um, in which we're not conditioned by grasping, attachment, opinionatedness, and so on. That's the structure of the four truths. It's also, I think, particularly in the latter to the latter um, metaphysical issues that he refuses to address, that he's um, uh, he's not going down the road that will lead to any kind of, of dualistic view, uh, a mind and a body, a consciousness and a world. But as we've seen in the way he describes experience, the five aggregates, he's talking about a vision of the world that is highly participatory and seamless. He's not starting with assumptions of there being a body and a mind or a subject and an object. He refuses to go down that route, and instead he sketches um, a view of the world in which there really are no lines that segregate the different elements of our experience. It's a seamless whole that he's describing that is highly interconnected and interrelated. Now, the other parable that he uses as um, a response to people posing these kinds of questions is the parable of the blind men and the elephant. And this concerns a story that he invents about a king, of a travesty, who... Um, asked one of his uh, retainers to bring before him all of the people in Shravasti who have been blind from birth. And so these people are gathered uh, before the king. And then the king asks an elephant to be brought uh, before these people. And each blind person is then uh, brought up to the elephant and is able to touch a particular bit of it. 
And so at the end of the exercise, uh, the king asks the blind men what the elephant is. And the blind men who have touched the leg of the elephant say the elephant is like a pillar. I'm sure you've heard this story. Some who have touched the side of the elephant say the elephant is like a, a storeroom. Those who have touched the tip of the tail of the elephant say the elephant is a broom, and so on. And what's striking about this um, is that the people who get bogged down in these kinds of metaphysical questions are compared to the blind men who only, as it were, have a partial view of the whole elephant. And thereby they mistakenly think of it as being something uh, which it clearly is not. So in other words, the, another problem with getting caught up in metaphysics is that you actually fail to see the whole picture. You fail to see, in this example, the whole elephant. An elephant, of course, is a, is a living organism uh, which contains many different aspects and parts and so on. But the challenge is to be able to apprehend the whole thing. And the Buddha, in fact, compares his Dhamma to the elephant. Not any one bit of it. In other words, the challenge is to have what we would nowadays call an holistic uh, sense of experience, um, not a, a limited or partial view that is driven by a particular belief. Now this brings us back to another a definition that the Buddha offers of uh, the stream entrant that we spoke of yesterday. Let me read it out. This is from Sangyutta Nikaya 24, section 1. When bhikkhus, a noble disciple, has abandoned perplexity regarding the five aggregates, form, feeling, perception, inclinations, consciousness, and when, further, he has abandoned perplexity regarding the four truths or the four points, he is then called a noble disciple who has entered the stream. So stream entry is also got to do with arriving at a sense of the bigger picture arriving at a sense of, uh, of these five aggregates, which again is code, Buddhist code, for the totality of what you're experiencing right now. The whole elephant, in other words. Uh, not being limited by a particular dogmatic view or belief about the nature of consciousness or whatever. Now there are a number of passages um, in the uh, in the suttas, where consciousness, vijnana, is seen as what emerges out of 
the complex of relationships that any particular living organism has with his or her environment. This is very clear. That um, for the Buddha, consciousness emerges when a sensory organ um, comes into contact with an object of the senses, be it something you see or hear or smell or taste or touch, or something that's arising within your emotions or your feelings or your mind. And it's when those two things connect or touch, come into contact, that consciousness then emerges. But there's no consciousness that's somehow already there, lurking inside the organism, waiting for something to happen. Consciousness is what we would call nowadays an emergent property of the system. An emergent property of the system. Now, as you might be beginning to see, it's very difficult uh, when you see consciousness in that way to begin to imagine how such a thing could survive bodily death when the senses and the mind and the brain and the body uh, die. Uh, One of the conditions for consciousness dies as well. Consciousness is considered to be something impermanent, something that rises and passes away, so that when, for example, I'm looking out at you in this room, my eyes are working, I've got my glasses on, the light's shining, I can therefore have a contact, uh, an interaction with that visual field, and I can then say, I am conscious of you sitting in this room in Gaia House. If I close my eyes that consciousness stops. Open them, starts again. Close them, stops. Open them, start again. Consciousness comes and goes dependent upon the presence of the circumstances and the conditions of, uh, of my experience at a given moment. So this is, um, uh, I think, a, a sense of the world and a sense of the person within the world um, that is um, interactive and holistic. And it rather undermines the idea that there is um, a privileged consciousness of something um, that is independent of the uh, totality of events that is occurring in any, in any given moment of experience. And remember, the five aggregates are also the first noble truth, or the first point that we need to fully know. And there's another passage, which I don't actually have immediately to hand, where the Buddha is asked, well, what do you mean by fully knowing dukkha? Fully knowing this first point. And the Buddha answers, uh, to fully know dukkha means to fully know the five aggregates, to fully know form, feeling, perception, inclination, consciousness. 
And to fully know means to understand how those work as a kind of integral, interdependent whole, of which I am an inseparable part. It's not to have some detached, quasi-scientific knowledge of an observer apart from all of that who fully knows it. And in fact, in another text, um, he goes on to define what he means by fully knowing. Fully knowing experience does not mean to have some sort of perfect description of it, the, uh, you know, complete amount, set of informations about it. But it means, and this is the, the phrase in Pali, it means... Uh, Ragakayo, dosakayo, mohakayo. That fully knowing is an end of desire, an end of hatred, and an end of confusion. Or let's say an ending, kayo. An ending of attachment, an ending of hatred, an ending of confusion. That is what it means to fully know. So fully knowing something means to encounter our experience without the distorting influence of our attachments, of our aversions and our confusions. In other words, again, it comes down to something like a kind of radiant equanimity, which is what Martine was introducing this morning. So it's not to fully know, therefore, is a quality of knowing a quality of experiencing the world, experiencing oneself as an integral part of the world, that is not uh, determined by what you want, what you don't want, and by your confusions, which, the first one of which would be the notion that you are a separate observing self, apart from all of this. When that kind of confusion falls away, then we can start talking about what it means to really know this experience. So it's about losing certain distorting and uh, self-centered imperatives that actually distort and, and, and make it very difficult to really have a total sense of the kind of world we live in. Now the other point that we find, uh, this is in, this follows from the parable of the arrow. After the Buddha has said, um, uh, well he's given this story about what he will not therefore make any comment about, whether the world is finite, infinite, etc. He then says, well what do I declare? What is it therefore that I am going to say something about and perhaps not too surprisingly, he says, what I do declare is dukkha, the arising, the cessation, and the path. He uses those four sort of key terms. In other words, the four truths, as they're called. So again, what he's declaring is not a description of the nature of things, what he declares is a way of life. 
a way of life that, as we've been looking at over the last couple of days, has to do with fully embracing dukkha, in other words, our condition, this experience, of letting go of what arises habitually, namely this grasping or craving. And that letting go leads to moments in which that craving is not operative or it stops, which opens up the possibility of a path which embraces all of our humanity and leads, as it were, back to another way of being with the totality of the experience, etc. This feedback loop that we've been speaking of. So we have, I think, therefore, a, um, an approach that is quite um, explicitly uh, therapeutic, uh, pragmatic, not descriptive, not an attempt to arrive at a kind of final and correct view of the nature of reality. I feel that's a mistake, even though... Um, as Buddhism developed over the centuries, there evolved theories about the nature of the cosmos, the origins of the world, the um, nature of what is absolutely as opposed to relatively true, and so on and so forth. But when we go back to these earliest sources, that way of thinking is quite alien to what uh, the Buddha is doing. In other words, he's concerned with a practice that actually has a discernible and qualitative effect on uh, our lives. And this, again, is uh, quite clearly stated when he compares himself to a doctor. He compares his teaching to uh, medicine. And he compares his community to something like nursing staff, support staff, nurses. In other words, um, his sense of what his role is, is that of a healer. Uh, Someone who's concerned to heal an illness, to heal wounds, to heal Disease, not just in the physical sense here, but in a sense a kind of spiritual disease, which he diagnoses as this, um, is rooted in this grasping and this attachment and this craving. He, he wants to heal that. So the effect is not arriving at some greater knowledge, but actually resolving within oneself Uh, certain deeply-seated confusions, dilemmas, um, divisions that cause us um, and sustain a certain degree of frustration and pain and so forth and so on. And the Dharma, therefore, is basically a course of therapy rather than a, 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 a body of knowledge. And the Sangha 
the community is those relationships that um, support such a process. In other words, this is not just a solitary endeavor that you achieve by sitting with your eyes closed in the corner of your bedroom twice a day, but is a process that is supported by the cultivation of certain friendships. That's what it comes down to. And that's really the core of community, is friendship. So it doesn't mean necessarily that you have to belong to some great big organization with lots of people in it. But it does mean that it's valuable to cultivate friendships that support you in this process. And the purpose of such friendships is to enable each um, person within that relationship somehow to come to a greater flourishing in their life. Now this whole approach um, might strike us as, um, let's say, peculiar to Eastern religions, to say Buddhism, or we'll find similar approaches in Taoism and and other uh, Eastern traditions which give a great deal of emphasis to uh, pursuing a certain practice or a certain discipline or certain exercises. But we don't um, really... Uh, uh, we're not really so much aware that that was also a very important and central part of how philosophy was understood by the ancient Greeks. That um, the idea that, I mean, again, when we even use the word philosophy, I suspect many of us slightly cringe and think of of, of, of stuffy academics in university departments talking about formal logic or some other theory that's equally obscure and somehow cut off from what we would call real life. Philosophy strikes us almost immediately as difficult, hard work, um, cerebral, uh, detached, almost comically um, alienated. But that's a very um, different sort of uh, thing to how philosophy, philosophia, uh, friendship with wisdom or love of wisdom was understood um, by Aristotle, by the Hellenistic philosophers, um, particularly Pyrrho, who founded the school we call Skepticism, Epicurus, who founded the Epicurean school, Chrysippus and others who founded the Stoic school. For all of them, uh, philosophy was meaningless, and this is a paraphrase of a famous statement by Epicurus, unless it heals the soul, or the, the psyche, the mind, if you wish. So we have actually lost touch in our own culture with um, formative ways of thinking and practicing that were much closer to the, um, uh, the sort of ideas we get in these early Buddhist texts 
than we're perhaps aware. And uh, there are a number. A very good book that uh, covers this is by the French uh, uh, writer Pierre Hadot, H A D O T, called uh, "Philosophy as a Way of Life," where it's a very it's it's uh, published by Routledge. Um, it's very easy to read, and he really brings alive the idea of philosophy as something you do. In fact, he makes a rather nice distinction. He says, philosophy is not about informing, it's about forming. Uh, in, in French, that's it's a, little bit easy, a little bit easier to understand. We often think of philosophy as providing us with information about some difficult problem that the philosopher's struggling with, Whereas in the ancient world, philosophy was about forming the person, about shaping the person's life, about engaging in exercises very similar in many respects to what we're doing. For example, both the Epicureans and the Stoics gave great importance to living in the present moment, for example. Um, that they lived in communities, they sought to live simply, they tried to become very aware of how their minds were caught up in reactivity. Um, uh, Epicurus, for example, considers the root of much human suffering to be what he calls kenodoxa, which means some, literally it means empty opinions. Empty meaning vain, not empty in the sense of shunyata, but empty in the sense of kind of pointless or um, erroneous uh, points of view. So philosophy is not just about getting things right in some abstract, logical way, but rather uh, refining one's own understanding as a lived experience so that one's sense of yourself and your world become more and more in tune with the way things actually are unfolding. Now, unfortunately, um, none of these schools survived. Um, they, were in, they were actually suppressed. They were, they, they were, um, uh, about, they were um, forbidden by the uh, Christian emperor Justinian in about the 6th century AD. All of these schools of practice were closed um, under the pressure from the Christian churches. And that whole current of, of practice was lost in the West. Some of the Stoic practices were adopted by the Christian churches, but... Essentially, this idea of philosophy as a non-religious practice was lost in the West. But many uh, great figures that we still speak about today, like Seneca, for example, uh, Marcus Aurelius, uh, Cicero, and others, were practitioners of these uh, traditions. 
A very famous example is the book called The Meditations of Marcus Aurelius. The original title doesn't have meditations in it at all. It actually, the, the title is For Myself. In other words, it's Marcus Aurelius's personal notes to himself in terms of uh, training his mind to understand himself and others in a certain way. And Marcus Aurelius wasn't some hermit living in a cave. Marcus Aurelius wrote these uh, comments when he was, he, he was the Roman emperor. He was fighting the German tribes up in the swamplands of Bavaria. He was a fully engaged person. And yet he lived a very rich philosophical life in which he took these precepts very, very seriously. It's very difficult to imagine a politician today doing a similar thing. And again, I think that's a great loss in our culture, that we have lost touch with that idea of philosophy as a practice, as something that we can do. A person who somehow revived this, or tried to revive it, um, was the French um, essayist uh, Michel de Montaigne. I think I mentioned at the very beginning of this week that I've been inspired by reading Montaigne. Montaigne was a high Renaissance figure who sought to put into practice the teachings of Pyrrho, Epicurus, and the Stoics uh, in the 16th century Europe. And his essays are essentially his own record of his own thinking process as someone trying to practice these things. Uh, There's a very good book that was published last year by Sarah Bakewell uh, called How to Live, And it's a study of the life and the thinking of Montaigne. Uh, It's very, very good. But it's quite exceptional that figures like Montaigne um, uh, have existed in our culture. He's he's really anomalous in terms of philosophers because he doesn't even begin to try to create a system of thought. He's trying to think clearly in order that it has a transformative effect on his own life. So in some ways, I think, uh, Buddhism and Buddhist practices um, are in a way a revival of this kind of, philo- this kind of way of doing philosophy. And you might even see a lineage uh, starting with Pyrrho, Pyrrho of Elis, was the first of the Hellenistic philosophers. Now, what's interesting about Pyrrho is that he accompanied Alexander the Great to India, and he's known to have had discussions with Indian sages. And there's an ongoing argument, even today, as to whether Pyrrho's philosophy had its origins in Buddhist and other Indian traditions. Pyrrho uh, arrived in India, or what is now Pakistan, uh, about 70 years after the Buddha's death. And many of his ideas have very, a very strong Buddhistic kind of flavor. He talks, for example, of the importance of achieving ataraxia 
in Greek. Ataraxia means an untroubled mind, which is very close, actually, to the idea of nibbana, uh, a mind that is not troubled by grasping and craving. In fact, the word shanti, peace, peacefulness, is a synonym for nibbana, an untroubled mind. But the untroubled mind is not an end in itself. It's what enables uh, and leads to what the Greeks called eudaimonia, which means, um, which is usually translated nowadays as, as human flourishing or human well-being, which again is very close to the idea of the Eightfold Path, I think. So here you have philosophy that aims at achieving a state of an untroubled mind on the basis of which a human life can then flourish. Which brings us to the idea of irrigating the field. Finalement. And this is um, a passage that I found very um, helpful. It's in the Dhammapada, it's verse number 80, where the Buddha says, just as a farmer irrigates his field, just as a fletcher fashions an arrow, just as a carpenter shapes a piece of wood, attanam dhammati pandita, the wise person tames the self. The wise person tames the self. Or the sage tames the self. Now this I, this way of uh, the, the, this verse is very striking because it's very explicitly recognizing that the self is not something to be abandoned or dismissed as non-existent or just an illusion, but actually the self is something to be to be trained. Um, uh, one of the modern philosophers in the West who has picked up on the idea of the ancient Greek practices, uh, calls this uh, the governance of self, le, gouv- le gouvernance de, de, de soi, le pratique de soi. And that's Michel Foucault, who, who died a few years ago. In his last uh, lectures, he sought again to recover this tradition in philosophy of philosophy as a practice for transforming oneself. So here we have the Buddha saying basically the same thing. Except he uses here images taken from um, craft work and farm work, which again I think is actually rather important. The Buddha compares the, the person to a field, a field that uh, can be irrigated. Now this implies, of course that perhaps for much of our lives we are not irrigated. And an unirrigated field is a barren field, a field that is unable to produce a crop because it's parched, it's dry, nothing will grow. So just in the same way as you would, uh, you would carve channels through a field and pour water through them so that 
the seeds could be nourished and then can grow into healthy plants in the same way. Uh, the task of this practice is to irrigate and to nourish your, the field of your own being, of your body, your mind, your feelings, your emotions, uh, to start nourishing that, to fertilize that in a way. But again, irrigation is another water metaphor, entering the stream, letting the, the monsoon rains fall, it's all about water. It's about life. So, in some ways, what we are doing when we practice uh, mindfulness, for example, is we are quite literally opening up channels within our experience so that they become more and more carved into our, into our brains, perhaps, and over time become the more natural way we respond. Now, this, curiously, um, has given rise to the research into the effect of meditation on the brain. And the language they use is basically um, uh, uh, opening up certain neural channels and networks, the plasticity of the brain. The fact that by doing meditation over periods of time, not just for a few days, unfortunately, but over periods of years actually opens up pathways in the brain. It actually has now been shown to have a, a demonstrable effect. And there's, a lot, there's a lot of interest in this at the moment. And it seems to me that's very similar in a way to the idea of irrigation that the practices we're doing, although we might be sitting here for 45 minutes feeling frustrated and bored, we're actually doing something that over time is going to have an effect on the way we actually respond um, intuitively and naturally to our experiences through the practice of mindfulness, the practice of concentration, loving kindness. All of these, these are exercises similar to those that would have been practiced by the ancient Greeks and throughout Asia in Buddhist communities to actually make a, a difference, a change in the structure of our lives. Just as a fletcher fashions an arrow, again, the um, idea suggests that you know, an arrow is something that when it's well made, will go directly to its target, which suggests that our lives are often not very clearly directed. In fact, often we feel that we're going off in all directions. We don't really have a clear-cut focus to our lives. We may be very good at our work, but pretty hopeless in our home life, or vice versa. And so what the practice, I think, is also about, and this is strongly suggested in the idea of the Eightfold Path, is about integration. It's about bringing the different um, elements of our life, the way we see things, think about them, speak, act, work, and so on, into um, a clearer direction and focus. It's the cultivation of certain virtues. In that, in that sense, it's a sort of virtue ethic 
<coughs> a bit like that proposed by Aristotle. Just as a carpenter shapes a piece of wood, which again suggests that our lives are somehow very often not really terribly well formed uh, or only partially formed. So again, going back to the idea of hado, uh, the practice is one in which we form ourselves. And we have bildung in German. The idea of education is about forming the person. So I think all of these metaphors are valuable because they uh, suggest that who we are, ourself, our, the person we are, is not some fixed thing that stands apart from the world and looks at it from a detached perspective. But actually what we are is something, is a project to be realized. Uh, that um, the self is not a thing, it's a process. And, and when, when we talk of anatta, not self, we're basically recognizing that everything within our experience is not reducible or identifiable with me. Instead, I emerge out of the things I do. The, the self is something we form, something we create, something we cultivate over time. Uh, provided, of course, that we have some sort of clear project of self-development or self-realization. But again, I think what's important is to get is to, is to is to put aside this idea that Buddhism says there is no self. Uh, that's a very, um, I think, a slightly dangerous idea, frankly. Uh, that. Um, there is certainly no self in the sense of there being a fixed, uh, separate, detached ego or soul uh, that doesn't change and that goes on forever. But that doesn't mean that you don't exist. What it points to is that your existence is something that's constantly in process. It's a challenge in terms of how you think, how you behave, how you act, how you form relationships, all of this is about the practice of the self, the, the taming of the self, as the Buddha puts it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.